broken apparition Shattered glass tapping on my hurt for solving frictions oh. Hey yeah, hey yeah When you discover something that nourishes your soul and brings you joy Something that truly matters to you Care enough about yourself to make room for it in your life And if you find that you don't have enough time for what matters Stop doing things that don't Mark and Angel. Listen, I want to welcome you into episode number 13 of the Mental Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and I'm so thankful that you joined us today. You know, that, that quote meant something to me because I was in a clubhouse room today. And um, yeah, I just, uh, we were talking about self-love and self-care. And one thing that I mentioned was that when it comes to the self-love and self-care journey, sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you have to be a little selfish to care for yourself. It's okay to tell that friend that I can't go out, even when you can afford to. You don't owe them an explanation. It's okay to tell that family member I can't be here or be there. It's okay to take that wellness day that your job allows you to take. It's okay to tell your spouse, hey, I just need some time alone. It's not you. I just need to go take a walk. I need to go take a drive. I need to binge watch TV show. I just need some time. Normalize self-care, normalize taking time for yourself. There's nothing wrong with it, nothing to be ashamed of. And um, I just thought I'd leave with that thought, leave with something positive, you know. Clubhouse has been very important to me as of late. I've shared with you, those of you guys who aren't familiar with the platform, it's a very beautiful platform. And um, I've been thankful enough to partner with some of the right people who have helped me rebrand, reshape some things, um, my club on Clubhouse, the Mental Wealth and Wellness Club, is nearing. By the time you hear this, we're going to have a thousand members in the club. If you've been listening to each episode of the podcast, I probably started talking about this maybe just a month, a little over a month ago. And I'm at a thousand members. And I don't get so caught up, honestly, in just the numbers. Like, it's not, again, when I started this thing, it wasn't for numbers. It wasn't for fame. It's not for money. I don't get paid from this podcast. I don't get paid from Clubhouse. I do this because it's my passion, right? At some point, it may become profitable. I may be involved in certain things that can make it profitable. But I do pretty well in my regular life. I don't need income from this. Um, But what I do realize is that the more that you attract listeners, the more that you attract a following, the louder your message is. The message never changes, but it gets louder because there's more people hearing it and more people sharing it. And that's how the podcast platform, you know, I used to post the podcast on my Facebook. I post some of the episodes, like I post some clips on my, my personal Instagram, on Snapchat sometimes, but I was told by a really successful business person that has maybe like a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, go where your audience is. So if I'm building an audience on Clubhouse, that's where I'm going to spend most of my time, where most of my energy getting new listeners each and every day, getting new connections, new relationships. I can't tell you how many people are in my direct messages on my uh, mental wealth Instagram page, asking me questions, sharing their story, sharing their truth. I can't tell you how many people I've connected. Every interview I've done, and many of you guys love the interviews, um, have said, have come from the app. Every single one, except like one of the early ones. One of the early ones when I interviewed my friend Glory. But all the interviews as of late, have come from the app. Connections came from Clubhouse. And these have been some of the most compelling content I've put out and some of the most compelling conversations. For those of you guys who are just fans of just me speaking for an hour, 
that's that's coming to you. Trust me, I don't. Um, someone asked me the day, are you going to get back to just doing a podcast on your own? And I believe I can hold your attention. I believe I can produce and write a whole episode of a podcast, plenty of them. And I've done that just centered around me, just centered around my own thoughts. But I just felt like as compelling as it is, it's not as compelling as what I've done as of late. But let me know. Slide it to my Instagram DM at the mental underscore wealth podcast. Let me know your thoughts. If you want to be a guest and have some thoughts, I'm still waiting on my sister, Sadell. When you listen to this, you know what I'm talking about. We need to talk. But um, no, you know, uh, honestly, uh, you know, I, I enjoy both. But as of late, I've really enjoyed being able to use my platform that's grown on its own and be able to share light with other people in that space. That then we can just grow it together. I found it to be really compelling. So we're going to continue on in that way. Not necessarily every week. You're going to get an episode soon. It's just me. Trust me. But if you're a fan of that. But um, it's a necessary thing to continue to grow the audience and grow the grow our partnerships. And there's some really, really amazing things uh, coming, including I won't say when and where, but I will be making an appearance on another podcast that's also broadcasted on a, on a TV channel. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be probably the biggest thing I've done so far. I think I, I, I filmed that Friday, uh, this coming Friday the 23rd. So look out for that. But that is huge. And there's some other partnerships I'm working on. But nevertheless, this podcast, what is it about? Reach out, rise up. I'm going to interview Dr. Richard Broussard, who's going to tell his journey and his story of his mental health and what he's gone through and why. This nonprofit entitled Reach Out, Rise Up, that you can go to reachout-riseup.org and find out more information about his nonprofit organization. But I want to start with this poem. Um, Dr. Richard Broussard said on a panel that actually was called Unmasking Peninsula. You can Google that. It was something hosted by Hampton University in Virginia. And I won't say which city I live in, but I'll just say I'm not that far from Hampton University. That's a local historically black college. This was back in April. He sat on the panel with a couple of other doctors, most notably Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. If you ever watch CNN or MSNBC, you know exactly who he is, a prominent voice and professor when it comes to politics and social issues. And uh, Dr. Broussard uh, has a story to tell, but the Unmasking Peninsula theme was based on this poem that I'm going to recite to you from Paul Lawrence Dunbar, from the complete poems of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. You can look this up. A beautiful poem. It says, We wear the mask that grins and lines. It hearts our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile. And mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise? And counting all our tears and sighs. Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. I just thought that that was such a powerful piece of art. When we recognize we're in this month of July, BIPOC, Mental Health Awareness, Black, Indigenous, People of Color. There's so much we go through. You heard episode Episode seven or eight, go hide, but we but what we won't seek where we we talked about all the things, particularly in the black community, why we were raised to to hide our mental illnesses, how we're really feeling to 
to, to, to mask our emotions. And I concluded that episode by saying I refuse to hide. And so one thing I'm doing is I'm no longer hiding behind my feelings. I'm uncovering those for my listeners. But also I'm using my platform to shed light on the stories of others. One quote that you're going to hear me say a lot, and I may have mentioned it before. I think I mentioned it in my interview with Dr. Richard. Is people don't realize how much strength it takes to pull your own self out of a dark place mentally. So if you've done that today or any day, I'm proud of you. The open invite. And the other thing that I mention a lot is that one day people will look at how you made it out of all the things you're struggling with right now. And your blueprint will be someone else's survival guide. Meaning the more that we share, the more that we connect with each other and share our trauma, share our truth, you're going to help someone. And even if it's just one person, just one, you did well. But listen, we're going to do that today on this episode. Reach out, rise up. Please enjoy the interview with Dr. Richard Broussard. Reach out, rise up. Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of the Mental Wealth Podcast. I am your host, Justin. I'm here with a special guest, a friend of mine, Dr. Richard Broussard. How are you, sir? How's it going, brother? Uh, blessed to be here. Uh, so, yeah, it's been it's been a while. We've been trying to connect. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad that it's happening today. You know, I'm so glad to have you, Doc, because, uh, yeah, we have been trying to connect. You are someone else I connected with on Clubhouse. I've been um, in my podcast episodes. I've been, you know, ra giving rave reviews for Clubhouse because it's given me many different interesting people to talk to. And, um, you know, one of my passions um, that I always tell people when I started this this thing uh, back in April, it was a place for me to vent and talk about, you know, my feelings and things that I'm feeling deep down within. But now the platform has grown to where I'm able to shine light on other stories in the mental health community. And I think that you have a story to tell. Um, not long ago, you posted something on your Instagram. Uh, you said, one day you will tell your story of how you overcame what you are going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Why, why, why did that resonate for you? Because when I read it, it, it truly resonated uh, for me. Oh, well, you know, you look, you know, traditionally, that's how knowledge and wisdom and experience was passed down from, <clears throat> excuse me, from generation to generation, you know, from a, a village mentality. I always approach things from that mentality. And, um, you know, personally with me, it was kind of like the redemption of unearned suffering. You know, a lot of things that I experienced early in my life, um, I was always wondering, you know, how this would how could this be a good thing? You know, how could something that happened to me that I had no control over be a good thing um, to live with? And then once, you know, I, I realized that, you know, through humility and gratitude that despite, <clears throat> you know, my traumas or things I've experienced that I am still here and I'm alive and I'm able to speak out for those who I identify with you know, that have walked a similar path who may not have a voice to speak. Um, and then, you know, that, you know, getting out in the community and doing that type of work really um, resonates with, with a lot. You know, we do a lot of work around food, um, the homeless, 
um, addiction, all things that uh, are from the communities where, where I grew up, where I came from. So, um, I, you know, over the years, I've lost a lot of friends, you know, relatives, you know, who are my age or younger. So I'm just, you know, I look at it as an opportunity to speak up, you know, because we're just here for a season and I want to leave something here um, for a better generation for our children. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, so, so tell us before we kind of go back in history and understand your story um, and what you've been able to overcome right back to that quote of, you know, what you've been able to overcome helping someone else. You know, just share with us a little bit about what you're doing now. What type of doctor are you? What's your level of expertise? And what are you doing as far as the mental health space is concerned? Wow, it's a multifaceted question. Now, let's start with uh, what I do. I'm a doctor at a pharmacy. I've been, I graduated uh, in 2000 from the University of Tennessee uh, Health Sciences School in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where in my class of 100, I was the only black male accepted to that class. They graduated, uh, they, they came in in 1996. Um, so I represented kind of 1% of a subpopulation in that class. Um, so um, that, yeah, that's that's where I came from. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, West Side. Um, grew up there till I was like nine. And then we moved to Tennessee where my mom's from, my dad's family's from New Orleans. So um, very, um, you know, Southern upbringing to the Midwest, you know, a lot of ties there. Um, so well, a lot of... <clears throat> yeah, so real quick on that, what what drew you? So you're a doctor, so you're the guy when I go to CVS, right? You're the guy who puts my medicine together? Yeah, well, I used to do that. So I did that for 20 years. I started out with Albertsons. I went to Walgreens. I worked overnight okay. for six years. I was with CVS. I was with a smaller company named Menyards. And then right. I was with Albertsons and Tom Thumb uh, last. Uh, so I did community work, you know, all over Texas because I used to be a pharmacy manager as well as a floater. So I used to go from, you know, the top demographics where, you know, you might have the highest median income to um, the lowest level of poverty the next day, you know. So you see a lot of the differences in health and the health disparities um, due to the socioeconomic you know, factors. And, you know, after doing it for two decades, you realize that, you know, we're just treating people. Um, and I want to get more on the side of holistic approach of wellness and prevention, because there are always going to be people who are sick. Um, but I see our communities are suffering disproportionately and the lack of access to healthcare, the gaps in healthcare, um, the lack of education and economic inequality plays a big factor. So these are the what they call the social determinants of health. Um, that you know to get to health equity. That's what that's what I'm searching for is health equity. And and you know my oath was the alleviation of human sufferings. And I see us uh, communities of color suffering disproportionately. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And, and so and, and, and you being a doctor of pharmacy, I mean, that kind of puts you right there in the network dealing with these when it comes to the mental health space, dealing with these medications and prescriptions. And so you're, you're, you're familiar with, you know, modern medicine, obviously, as a doctor, um, you know, so so kind of going back to, you know, growing up in Chicago, you mentioned you moved to Tennessee. 
your, uh, your mom's from Tennessee. You guys moved. Your dad was from New Orleans. Um, but I know something when, when you were younger, um, something, something tragic happened with, with your mother. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that affected you? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. This was when I was 26. I, I just had graduated. You know, I didn't know if you wanted me to just tell the whole full story or how you wanted to segment it, but yeah. Well, so, whatever you want to share, I kind of want to, I want the audience to be able to understand, you know, okay. where that, I okay. think that was probably a, a big moment in your life and then kind of will branch up into um, kind of come back to, to what you're doing today. But just, yeah, tell us anything you'd like to share regarding um, that situation for you. Yeah, so yeah, when I was 26, this was right before I was about to graduate from pharmacy school. I was doing my rotations at the VA um, and that's, I was doing my mental health rotation there. And that's where I really got a good sense of, you know, mental health and PTSD and how environment and experiences play into uh, health outcomes and behavioral and psychological um, outcomes. And it was there where my mom, she was like, she had been sick for a little while. And you know, my mom and dad told us that she had Bichette's disease, which is kind of like similar to lupus. And about two months before I was about to graduate, they called us to the hospital, me and my brother. And we just didn't know what it was about. You know, we knew mom was sick. She had been in the hospital a couple of times. I was about to graduate. But that meant, you know, the world to her because it was really her dream for me to go to pharmacy school. You know, I didn't see all my all my uncles and all my first cousins before me. They all went to the military. They all were either Marines or Army, Navy. Um, <clears throat> but she saw something different for me. And I enrolled in college and, you know, got my undergraduate degree from Christian Brothers. 96 and then you know I was on the verge of you know her pushing me through and you know really I had my dad too he was there but you know dad was just a worker you know but she was always that that cheerleader you know in the background saying that you know you can do it you know I was she wasn't afforded that opportunity because she grew up a sharecropper's daughter um, they didn't have they went to school half the year the other half they picked cotton and my mother was very intelligent so she saw that same intelligence in me. And we got to the hospital, you know, coming back to the story, um, they told him, told us that, you know, they hadn't been really forthcoming with us about the severity of my mother's illness. And my mother had HIV that had progressed to AIDS syndrome. Man, wow. and it was, uh, it was the shock of the hour because even some people at my school knew that, and I didn't know because they were upperclassmen and they worked at some pharmacies kind of outside of the uh, area which we lived because, you know, it was still at that time, you know, it was a lot of, you know, social stigmatization around people who had HIV or, you know, who had AIDS. And my mother required, she acquired it from a bad blood transfusion uh, from a trauma center in Memphis where she, uh, you know, where she had an ovarian cyst that ruptured and she required blood. Um, the life expectancy for most black women, you know, of course their prognosis is the worst. Um, even today, you know, we see disproportionate amounts of 
African-American females that represent like 50, 58 to 59% of all HIV cases. Um, so it resonated with me and it, it was, you know, the prognosis was then was, you know, just a period, a matter of how long, how long before, you know, mother wouldn't be here anymore because the medication had, hadn't advanced as, you know, as it does, as it has now, where you can live a normal life with all of zero, um, you know, um, hit to your T cell count and, you know, a good quality of life uh, with the new medications that you get that they have out. And at the same time, it makes you kind of wonder because you saw Magic Johnson who had acquired it, some other celebrities that were taking investigational drugs who had acquired it. And they were doing well, and yet you see my mother dying. You know, um, you know yeah. two months, two months after I graduated, you know, I had came down, and I was taking my boards. My mother had got hospitalized again. My family, my brother and my dad, were kind of silent. You know, they wasn't saying much other than she was in the hospital, and you know she's okay. And then eventually, I got a call from her, her physician. And she was like, basically drop whatever you're doing, and, you know, come back to Memphis because your mom's, you know, this is probably her final days. So I came back to Memphis uh, and I didn't, I knew one other person here that was a family friend. He was going to chiropractic college and um, that was it. I didn't have any family or anything. So I went back to Memphis and that was the last day my mom spoke. And I had to make a decision to do not resuscitate. You know, that was a tough decision to make. I had passed my law proficiency. So I just told her, I had to talk with my dad. I was like, you know, I can't you know, just sit here, man, and, and watch it. You know, yeah. I got to go back and finish. So wow. uh, he, he understood. And so I came back to Texas and, you know, uh, Took it. I don't know. I don't know how I was able to take it, but I took it and I passed. And in October, she she passed away August twenty fourth. So October of two thousand, I did complete what we started. Um, so I, that's why I became a doctor. You know, and, uh, after that, the drinking really started to pick up. You know, I had started drinking early. You know, you go to college, you drink or you experience. Yeah, yeah. I want to. I want to kind of get to that in just a second, but yeah. um, because one one thing that uh, you know, even something you know, I watch what you post on social media. You you posted something today. Never let your emotions become a hindrance to forward motion. Keep working, hurt feelings, and all in a different way. That can apply in different ways, right? You know, it's when, when you're in friendships or relationships where obviously, you know, the difference of making an emotional decision, a decision based off of emotion or logic, right? But, you know, even in this situation, I think it's powerful that the trauma of, you know, losing your mother, you know, right at a big peak of your life where you're about to accomplish something that no doubt would make her so proud and very proud of you. Um, you know, you lose your mom, but yet in August, but yet you're still just a few months later, you're able to complete your mission to graduate, to complete your program and, and to finish. And no doubt uh, she, she would have been so proud. And so you were able to kind of keep forward moving, right? Um, and, and surviving because you you mentioned um, 
and we'll get to that a little bit later, but you 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 said something in your unmasking from the Unmasking Peninsula panel that you did, um, that you set on with with many other professionals, including Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, who many may know, quite quite famous, that does the round on the CNNs and the MSNBCs um, all the time when it comes to politics and social matters. Um, you said something surviving versus thriving. So I just want to first commend you, brother, on just, uh, you know, on you doing all you can to, to set out to finish what you started. Now, um, you know, you, you, you did. So once your your mom passed away, um, then, you know, something something major happened. Right. You started to drink and and, and how did that end up. What, what type of repercussions came from uh, from your drinking? Would you say? Yeah, it was. Uh... Yeah, it was very humbling. It was a very, so you talk about going from, you know, thanking God, you know, I, I passed, I passed to, you know, a situation 12 years later where you're saying, you know, God, why me? And it became a thing where I had already been drinking, you know, I was a binge drinker during college and, you know, 20 years, so fast forward, you know, I started to have a lot of sleep problems after my mom passed and, you know, alcohol became a thing that was easier to do. Um, nobody in my family had ever got, you know, psychological counseling services or even I've heard anybody talk about it other than, you know, church and prayer, you know, but, you know, one day I was at work and uh, I just physically, you know, started shaking and uncontrollably. I just, you know, I couldn't, it's like, you know, I don't know what's, what's going on with my body. I knew then that something wasn't right. <clears throat> but, you know, I kept quiet. Uh, I was like, well, I get off work, you know, go have a few drinks, you know. You know, and that becomes a thing. And I just started to use it more and more because now I wasn't just a student in school, you know, struggling so much. I was someone, you know, that was able to go out and, you know, not have really any family, anything around, just a lot of free time after work and, you know, the drinking progressed, you know, and 2011, I got a DUI, 2012, I got a DUI. Um, at the same time, my dad was staying with me. Um, he had got sick and, you know, he was having some mental fallout where we had to have him inpatient a couple of times over a two year period. And, you know, for his mental well being. And it was just a heavy load on me. And I was working overnights, <clears throat> drinking to go to sleep. And I realized that, you know, I had hit rock bottom when I got arrested for the second DUI. And I just, I just sat there, man. And I was like, you know, it's on me. This is my fault. Wow. Uh, you know, I can't blame this. I can't blame this shit on nobody else. Mm-hmm. So, so you, and so that's, that's powerful too, because many, many of us, uh, when we're going through things, we, we, we fail to take ownership, right? So the fact that you could take ownership of what, you know, what was causing it and, and we're going to, and I, I'm going in a timeline in a certain way on purpose, because we're going to, we're going to go back to something that happened to you as a child as well. But as we, as we stay here, with your, you know, your drinking and how that became a problem for you, at least knowing that, hey, before you can make a change, you have to first know that I have a problem, right? That I need to 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 rise above this 
And admit, because you go to anything, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, any type of self-help program, the first thing is first being brave enough to admit that something is wrong and you have to take ownership in that of what role you're playing. So again, that's fantastic. And I think to people listening, they can understand that too, that if, and if you want to overcome your challenge or your advice or what you're, what you're feeling right now, you first have to admit that you're feeling it because so many people are in denial. Um, but but one thing I too I, I do from you know reading up on your story as well, Doctor Doctor Richard, is that you know once your drinking became such a problem that you lost your 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 pharmacy license temporarily, you ended up in I think a twenty eight day lockup. You had to do rehab to see a psychiatrist. So so speak speak about that just briefly. What that experience was like losing your license temporarily, um, you know the, the rehab process. That just just speak to us about that. Yeah, that was the that was the toughest part. I I would say um, it was like the fall from grace, right? You know, yeah. realizing that you know your dad's living with you. He's just he was you know just starting to get stable himself. Um, single at the time, you know, I had been through a failed marriage, you know, prior, um, and it was like okay. Now what? Where do I go from here? You know, and I had the societal outcome is I had put the public at risk, at danger. You know, it was never drinking at work. It was, you know, these things that I was playing out, you know, in a very, very dangerous way. You know, which is getting intoxicated behind the wheel. I know our society normalizes, you know, drinking, um, but a lot of people have lost a lot of loved ones. Um, behind drinking and driving. So I'm grateful that none of the instances, you know, that that happened where I will have to live with that the rest of my life. And I'm also grateful that the encounters with, I had with authorities, you know, didn't end up tragic because they could have. Yeah. But and, also- and, I, Oh, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, I was gonna ask you, I said, I believe you've been sober for how long? Is it eight years now? Yeah, I'll be nine years, December 31st, uh, this, the end of this year. So I checked in, <laughs> I checked in on New Year's Eve, you know, eight, eight and a half years ago, uh, which is, that was pretty ironic too. So, but yeah, is, so, uh, I, so yeah, I, had to go, I had to go see a psychiatrist, you know, that was ordered by the board and the board of pharmacy was like, okay, you got to go see a psychiatrist. And at that time it was, a board appointed pharmacist, so for, I mean psychiatrist, so he's an advocate for them. So then once he does his mental evaluation, you go talk to the board and they discuss your whole life, you know, basically on the intercom while the board listens and all these things and you know it plays out how it plays out. But the judgment was after I saw the psychiatrist that, you know, I had a history of alcoholism, you know, substance abuse. And that time, that's when, you know, my childhood abuse came out. You know, that was the first time that I talked about it. <clears throat> and I felt like, you know, it was now or never, you know, because of the point I was at in my life with my career and, you know, what was going on with my family. My dad was in need of me and um, just to be for my own well-being, for my own life, uh, for my own health. And, you know, I talked about, you know, being sexually abused as a child growing up, you know, 
in Chicago at the ages of six to eight, you know, these um, most egregious violence, violences against children occur, you know, um, next to death, you know, it's, it's to me, it's, it's another type of death because it kind of disrupts a child's development in a way that, you know, their innocence is taken. And from yeah. that point, you know, it's it's a big trust thing. You're always in hyper alert. You know, you're always hyper vigilant. You're always, um, you know, trying to ensure your own safety. And drinking became a thing where I didn't have to feel that way. I could just feel relaxed in an environment. I could be at ease. I didn't have to worry about, you know, acting impulsively or or things of that nature, you know. So <clears throat> that's what got me to where I was that day, you know, sitting in front of the board saying that you're gonna have to do 28 days of inpatient therapy. In which they were trying to make it 90, but I was able to negotiate them down because, you know, I did, my dad was, you know, with me and he was, you know, kind of coming out of his own thing. So I appreciate them for that but I still had to do 28 days of inpatient. And I decided not to go to some um, 30,000, you know, a month facility where you just sit around and drink coffee. I went to a state facility and that state facility was uh, a lot of people coming out of prison. Some guys, you know, just homeless, looking for, you know, a place to stay, their next place to stay after, you know, this their third stint. You know, and I, me being the only you know, professional in there, and uh, it didn't, you know, but it reminded me no different than where I grew up, but the same people I've been around growing up all my life. You know, those guys became my brothers, you know, over those 28 days. And it kind of just got me back to the roots of, you know, where I came from and how hard I worked. And, you know, it gave me a perspective of, you know, or know that you, know, you came out of this before, you, you can do it again. Um, and at the same time, building compassion and empathy for, for those guys that I was there with. So after that, you know, I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days, like you said. Uh, right after I got out, I had to do random drug testing five days a week for five years, um, mandatory. Um, so excluding Saturdays and Sundays. I had to do three meetings a week uh, for five years. And then I had to do two regional meetings a year for five years. And that was just on the, the state board <clears throat> requirement side. Then I also had to do, you know, for the criminal side, I had the breathalyzer in my car for a year. I had random drug testing with them for a year. I had my license suspended for a year and a half. So I had to work on a work permit. Um, it was just, man, a long, long road uh, yeah. back. And it was, you know, it was, it was humility. And so and that's so, what, it got me to that point of just true humility. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's powerful, Doc, that you that you survived, right? You survived that situation. You're still here to talk that to talk about that story. And I think with that quote that I opened my conversation with, it's an opportunity for people to learn who maybe been in the lowest of lows, um, like you've been, and for them to 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 grow and to learn from you and to embrace uh, those bad decisions. But now you're in a better space. And so 
you know, one thing I'll briefly touch on, you, you did mention um, that you were sexually abused as a child between the age of six and eight. And you, what you didn't mention was something I wrote down. You held that in for 22 years um, before you were able to divulge that to anyone. And um, I, I want to speak to, obviously, as a young Black man, and, 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 and this is also, obviously, in the month of July, this is um, Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, or most cultures now, I think the better PC way to say it is BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, I believe it's very difficult for young Black men, Black men, period, to talk about our mental health at all, let alone being sexually abused, right? You know, being um, afraid to tell someone that you were that you were touched or you were assaulted in some type of way. I think it speaks to these societal uh, structures that make us feel like we have to be strong um, because of the oppression that we face that we have to put on this persona, right? Because, you know, that panel that you served on was, was about unmasking, right? Of revealing some of the things that we're going through. Um, and, and you mentioned in that panel, Dr. Richard, that, you said no one you knew ever took antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds, but you knew plenty of people who drank or abused drugs. And so you 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 grew up in a society where it was normal to not talk about your mental health is, issues, um, even if you had been assaulted, to not divulge that to anyone, and that the best way of dealing it dealing with those things were do were using vices like alcohol or drugs, only things that could potentially harm your health and um, set you back in your, in your life. Um, so speak, speak to, we, we know what the problem is. Speak to, in your opinion, what can we do? What can people like yourself, myself, people who really care about the mental health space, what can we do to try to progress that conversation, to try to destigmatize um, the negative connotations surrounding mental health, not just in the Black community, but just in all communities? What's your thoughts on that? Well, my thing is, you know, we are products of our environment. And that's that's true. So you look at, you know, early childhood experiences and we are products of what we see, what we hear, um, what, what, you know, what we inhale, what we eat, you know, all these things from our physical environment to our social environment to, our, you know, our nutrition and health environment. That's we are the sum total of that. And, you know, taking into account our temperament that we're born with. Um, so to me, it was very important after I had got sobriety that, you know, on this journey, you know, like you say that, you know, most black men are not speaking out about being sexually, you know, abused or sexual violence or molestation, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It, ha it happens and it happened to a lot of people I know because after I started to speak out about it, I would have guys, some very successful say, you know, thank you, you know, inboxing me or texting me and, you know, and then they start to share their story. But, you know, everybody's not gonna be, you know, the person that comes out and, be, and becomes public about it. But the more men we can get speaking out about it, and start to heal our own traumas because this is part of my therapy still mm -hmm. uh, for me to speak um, 
two children, you know, to identify with the inner child that was me. I'm still healing my inner child. So I'm speaking to myself also as I address the community and speak to, to be a sounding board for children that are going through this, right? As we even speak, um, it, it's happening. You know, globally we have 150 million girls that are sexually abused. We have 73 million boys that are sexually abused. Um, so that those are the global numbers. And, you know, just violence against children, period. You know, it's 1.7 billion per year um, types of violence against children. Um, so that, like you say, this is, it's, it's a bigger problem than just a black, white. It crosses all classes, ethnicities, social groups, religions. Um, it, this thing, is, you know, it's very real. And the more, the less we talk about it, the more it's gonna to continue to be a problem. Uh, so the point of intervention is to speak out. And, you know, that was a decision I made between myself and God that, you know, once I got sober seven years, um, that I was gonna speak out about my sobriety, overcoming, but I couldn't really do it without talking about what got me to the point of having to need to go to, through recovery. A lot of us do tell our stories about we've been sober, but what was the root cause that, that got us there? Most of us don't get there by just social drinking. It's something deeper that, that gets us to a point where we need, feel like we need a substance to keep us balanced. And, you know, we find it one way or another, whether it's overeating, whether it's drinking, whether it's, you know, it could come in many different forms. But for me, that's what it was. And I know it's a pervasive problem in our communities. You know, you see churches and liquor stores everywhere, especially in the lower economic uh, communities. They're everywhere. <clears throat> and on top of that, you know, the drug problem. Um, so I lost a cousin in 2016 to a heroin overdose, West Side Chicago. And um, that, 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 that speaks into, you know, the type of things that, that we see play out. He was, he hadn't turned 40 years, you know, so we talk yeah, about yeah. Like, yeah. And you know, you, you, you gave a quote uh, in the, um, in that, that Unmasking Peninsula panel that really stuck with me. You said, people change when the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain it takes to change. People change when the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain it takes to change. So that was powerful that, that, that I loved when you said, and I also say, I think you're right too, Doc, is that, you know, we have to make sure uh, there's more awareness and resources available for our children uh, to make sure they can they can monitor their mental health. We need to start at a young age and have mental health counselors in every school and making sure that uh, we can educate each other um, on uh, what, what these kids are going through. I, sh I shared on another episode uh, that a friend of mine who's now, you know, in his early 40s, I believe, mentioned that when he was younger, black, as a black child, he told his parents, I'm depressed, right? Um, I don't feel right. And they say, you're, you're too young to be depressed. You don't know, you, know, you don't have any reason to be sad. And he yeah. was even, he was even beat because uh, of how he felt and expressed that. And he said that he grew up to resent um, his parents in a sense, because, you know, mm. that old school mentality of just pray it away, go away, go outside. Mm. Like, yeah. and, and, and to your point, 
you know, it was, is it really, it's the environment, like you're a victim of your own environment, because if your parents were raised that way, then they're raising you that way. So at some point we have to kind of break the cycle, right? We have to kind of step up and make sure that we can, we can break that cycle. Um, and you, you, you are passionate about children and particularly because of what happened to you. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Reach Out, Rise Up. I know you're a certified mental health crisis, uh, certified in mental health crisis intervention. And you and I believe, is it your wife that's helped, that's founded the Reach Out, Rise Up? Uh, yes, yes. My, my, my wonderful wife who has actually been a big, my biggest you know, supporter of, of me, you know, getting out here and speaking in the community about my own sexual trauma and you know I don't know if I didn't have a wife that was as supportive of as she is and as passionate as she is about children um that I would you know be as passionate or be as present as I try to make myself available for so I appreciate her for that but yeah the 501c3 is called reach out rise up and we address the social determinants of health and you know those are it goes back to those things outside of our personal decisions, outside of the healthcare sector, outside of our genetic and biological factors that comprise, you know, our our health outcomes. <clears throat> so this is where we live, where we're born, where we live, where we play, where we work, where we age. Those are our social determinants, and it, you know, it comes in the physical, environment, environmental, and also, you know. Uh, social and so what we're looking at is the greatest point of intervention so we do a lot of things around food because you know we have one thing we noticed when school was let out because of covid that 60 percent of the children in the dfw area which is dallas fort worth area were not eating because they only ate meals when they were at school so that was breakfast and lunch and then they didn't have food until they got back to school the next day. So until they had started figuring out a way to bust the meals to the children, the children just didn't have food. And, you know, that was some sleepless nights. And, you know, I, I got to the point where I was able to, one day I was at work, I just called one of the pastors I know that does great work in the community. And I was like, you have any food? I know, you know the sector, the word kids need food. And, you know, we went there, my wife, I was at work, she went there, she was like, man, so much food here, I don't know. You know, I, so I called up another group, you know, a nonprofit that I knew that does work in that area. And we secured enough food for, for to feed like a thousand families, a thousand children rather, and you know, some some of the caregivers and uh, the, other, the other nonprofit, you know, they gave out books, um, you know, something that the kids could hold on to during the time. And, that kind of started us looking at the social determinants of health and that particularly in that area, looking at about 63 years of life for African-American males when the state average for Texas is 78. But then you also want to go from the least advantage to the most advantaged. And in the areas, you know, this is divide, defined by zip code. So this is where you live, your proximity of your environment you know, by designated by geo mapping or zip code, where you find that in the higher economic um, median incomes, they're 90 years of life. So they're living 12 years beyond the life expectancy. So that speaks into the money, power and resources and affordability of, you know, 
nutritious foods from safe and affordable housing, free of, you know, um, chemical plants or toxic things in the environment and to education, you know, so all these things um, play into the fact that, you know, as you were talking about education and awareness with the children pertaining to, you know, all things that pertain to wellness. And that, and that's what we are with our movement. So we did a community garden, we partnered with the church. We have a 100 church, 100 community gardens initiatives. That's to create a food source because give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, you know, he feeds himself and his family for a lifetime. And, you know, we saw the church as a, still as a, as a jumping point for community you know, even during it was even though it was a pandemic, we had some very large churches in Dallas, and you know they're very um, present in the community. Always will be, have been historically. Um, so to show them that hey, we need people where they are in life. We realize there's high prevalence of diabetes, high prevalence of hypertension. There's food insecurity. There's transportation challenges. Um, so let's. You know, build a sustainable food source, and then from there we can get to some master master gardening opportunities for economic development, and we can get into some uh, farmer markets for you know economic development, and take it from there. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, Doc. And I wanted to thank you for your work that you're doing at the Reach Out uh, Rise Up organization. You guys can find more information about it, that organization. Um, at reachout-riseup.org, reachout-riseup.org. Uh, and I also want to, before I get you out of here, I want to congratulate you. I've been monitoring your Instagram page. You recently through John Hopkins University completed a psychological first aid course. So you're certified uh, there, which is beautiful. And also you've been doing a lot of works on the front line, uh, helping uh, many people get vaccinated and, um, you know, th throughout the year COVID and using your, your resources and your time to help out with that. I know one time we were going to connect before and we couldn't because you were on the front lines helping people. So, so I know your work is something that's passionate about you. I can, I can hear that from you. And I'm, I'm just so glad that we, we, we got a chance to, to talk to you today, doctor. Uh, let, let the audience know where, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at at Doc Rick seven three at Doc Rick seven three on Instagram. You can find me on um, LinkedIn at Richard D Broussard, which is B R O U S S A R D. It's Broussard, but that's of course Cajun Cajun name. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. I mean, not Instagram, but Twitter <laughs> at Black Rating, like Black. Raiden, R-A-I-D-E-N 760. That's my uh, Twitter account. Um, my Facebook account is just the same as my LinkedIn. Um, so th those are places you can find me and also you can find um, some music that I you know that I created on, um, I have a Facebook page, uh, not Facebook page, but I have songs out on um, digital platforms just pull up doc rich i have a couple singles out actually i'm about to release two more singles and i have a pretty big opportunity coming up that i don't want to speak on just yet but um i'm excited about it um so music has been a big part of my life too for as a protective factor i started writing at 11 and that that was something that really helped me and even to this day 
because um, I've continued to do music as a part of my life. It's a part of uh, what helps me heal, heal also and um, build resilience. But those are the places that you can find me. Um, <clears throat> you know, well, I got a single called We All We Got. The other one's called Southern Uncomfort. And uh, I got another one called Just a Conversation that's about to come out in a couple of weeks. Um, but okay. yeah, that's, that's, that's where I am. Oh, well, we're definitely going to, we're going to definitely check uh, Doc and support your music journey. I'm looking at Apple right now. I can see those, uh, those links there. So yeah, music is a great way to, to kind of uh, be therapeutic for you and, and kind of put that pain into the music. So key to you to grow that. And if all else is a way to channel that energy and channel um, some of the things that you're going through, but so glad and proud of where you are now in this journey. I think you're going to be an inspiration to many. And I want to kind of conclude our conversation with where I started it, right? That, that one day you will tell your story of how you overcame what you were going through now and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. So, Doc, you're doing that right now with your story. You're helping people day by day. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, my friend. Um, thank you. I'm honored. Um, anytime you want to have me back, I know it's kind of a little bit all over the place. So thanks for keeping me, <laughs> keeping, you know, because it's, it's a lot to unpack you know, in, in such a short amount of time. So you always want to try to, you know, work efficiently, but I appreciate your patience and um, being a great moderator or interviewer today. Um, and the blessings to you and your family for, for what you're doing and um, providing this outlet, you know, uh, as we build, continue to build community. Um, so it's important, important work that you're doing also. So it's one without the other, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's the synergy. So I appreciate you. No worries, Doc. You're welcome anytime. I'm Justin, and this has been another episode of the Mental Wealth Podcast. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Rich, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time with me today. Um, it was really, really, really appreciated. We have been trying to connect behind the scenes for a month or so, but he has a busy schedule. He'd been helping out with the pandemic and vaccinations and obviously living in two different time zones. So I'm glad we were finally able to connect and make some time. Definitely check out what Dr. Rich has going on. You can follow him on Instagram at docdocrich73. Definitely, I'm going to link his Instagram as well as his nonprofit page. Uh, he also has some music out as well that's pretty great. So definitely tap in with Dr. Rich. Uh, thank you so much for, for spending some time and telling your story and maybe someone today some little boy out there, some grown man out there will feel a little less afraid to know that they're not the only ones. There's such, such something so powerful in testimony and storytelling um, that I want to continue to embrace on this podcast. And, and that's why um, I do what I do and why I'm so passionate about it. Again, a quick plug for Clubhouse, man. The club is growing, the Mental Wealth and Wellness Club. If you want an invitation, if you heard of Clubhouse, it's an app that you only can get in unless someone invites you. Well, if you slide in my DMs and tell me that you're interested in joining the club, being a part of my rooms that I hold every Sunday at 1 o'clock Eastern, uh, 10 o'clock Pacific time, 6 o'clock British time, uh, slide it to my DMs, Instagram, at the mental underscore wealth podcast. Um, and let me know. I'll send you the link. You can join the club. You'll automatically get led into the clubhouse and start building a profile and a presence on the app. It's very useful. There's a lot of great rooms and conversations going on. And um, yeah, it's just a great way to get some USA, get away from the world and have some realistic conversations. So if that interests you, let me know. And if not, if you just have some ideas for the episodes or want to do some collaborations, reach out to me. I'm always interested in new ideas and uh, we're going to continue to grow this platform. And so we can get our message out. So thank you so much for your support. Affirmations very quickly. 
Here's one when you, here's a few for when you get lonely. This is from prolificliving.com. Number one, I love and approve of myself. Two, I feel the presence of those who aren't physically here. Three, I am too big a gift of a gift to the world to waste my time on self-pity and sadness. You have something to offer. You are an amazing person. Don't waste it in sadness. I know it's hard. It's easier said than done because trust me, I'm there every other day, twice on Tuesday. But remember the gift. What, what lifts me up is to know that I'm affecting change and that even if there's a few people out there who are listening now, even if it was just one listener who was like, you know what, this is it. This is the one. I will be thankful. Because we held a room, uh, uh, whenever you listen to this this Sunday, about anxiety. And there were people DMing me just saying, I needed this. I just wanted to sit in the audience and listen. I I was too afraid and too anxious to share my story. But just listening to other stories helped me get away and get out of my own head for just a moment. It was beautiful. When I hear stuff like that, it just lifts my spirits. It tells me when I doubt myself and I go through my own uh, mental illnesses of being an overanalyzing person. And doubting myself and doubting my worth, it reminds me that I have a voice. I'm not the only voice by far, but I have a voice. I have something to say. And there's someone out there that wants to hear it. Final affirmation. If you feel small or insignificant, I'm a unique child of this world. Still from prolific living, by the way. I'm a unique child of this world. I have as much brightness to light up the world as anyone. And get this. I may be one in... 7 billion, but I'm also one and 7 billion, right? It's like flipping the mindset to that from the half empty, half full is how you, your mindfulness, your awareness, how you picture things in your mind. Yeah, you're one in 7 billion, but you're also one and 7 billion. There was no one on this earth with Dr. Seuss saying no one alive that is youer than you. That was off the top of that. If I got that wrong, forgive me. I didn't look that one up. That's just a Dr. Seuss line. There's no one alive today that is youer than you. You are unique. You are the one of a kind. You are special, even if you don't believe you are. And I believe if we we start having those conversations, we build ourselves up, build each other up, stop the hate, we'll show more love and kindness to each other. Reach out, rise up together. Educate these kids, educate ourselves on the mental health resources that are available for us. We're going to get somewhere, I promise you, very soon. Thank you for all the love and support. Thank you for continuing to listen. Share this with a friend. Let them know the movement that we have going on. Reach out to me on Instagram at the mental underscore wealth podcast. Stay safe out there. Take care of yourself. Take care of your mind. Your mind is an investment. Until next time, this is the Mental Wealth Podcast, and I'm your host, Justin.